This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. Yes, I get that I have white privilege and there's a system that upholds whiteness. Okay, so now internalize that by asking yourself, where do you walk around? And I've had to do that. Like, where do I walk around in the world and, and in my mind and think that I am actually better than people? Mm. Yep. That's a messy, ugly truth that I have to confront and face, but it is the only way to get free. Okay. It is the only way to get free is to, to have that conversation with myself. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. For today's essential question, how are white supremacy and anti-Blackness a result of the living legacy of colonization? And what does it mean for us today? With us this morning, we have our guest, Alisa Pereras. She is an equity, inclusion, and justice consultant and researcher in Medellin, Colombia. She's also pursuing a doctorate in education, social justice with the School of Leadership and Education Sciences at the University of San Diego. Alisa centers her work on this question, what does it mean to be free? Her goal is partnering with your community and our communities um, in order to help organizations not just become progressive, but rather to help cultivate a culture that makes everyone in the community feel more human and more free. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're excited to have you. So so just, we always ask beyond your bio, what Hope just read, what else should listeners know about you to kind of understand your perspective or frame the conversation today? Yeah, I think it's important. Um, just, I enter this space from like, childhood curiosity. Um, I am a daughter of immigrants. My mother immigrated from Colombia. My father immigrated from the Philippines. Um, and, and, you know, while this is often confused in the United States, race, race and ethnicity are in fact two different things. Um, and so my, my mother is, you know, ethnically Colombian and racially white. And my father is Filipino, but very, very dark skinned. And I just grew up really curious about, you know, the different ways that they experience xenophobia. And like, while I didn't have the language for it, I recognized that like xenophobia and racism were different things. Like while my family's experienced different realities um, as being immigrants and like, absolutely my Colombian family struggled and there was linguicism and, and accent prejudice. Like it, it looked different in many ways than the ways that my Filipino family experienced and, and navigated the world. And even just like, being the brown child on the arm of a white mother and like noticing the ways that folks received me and, and the questions that they had um, and like going out and, and thinking it was funny that, you know, everyone always assumed I was not my mom's kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but then like, as I got older, the, the, the humor behind it and the curiosity has transitioned into like a criticality around the yeah. ways the systems intersect. Um, and so I, I, I share that to say, like, I do, I enter this work really still from that place of like childhood curiosity and wanting to know, like, how do we become free? And what are the systems that intersect that keep us from our freedom and our humanity? Um, a lot of this work for me is about healing, 
healing the, the, the child in me who went to a predominantly white school and didn't fit in. Um, but also healing the adult in me that bought into white supremacy because I thought that would help me fit in. And so I gave up pieces of my humanity trying to align myself to whiteness and I'm still healing that. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, I, the, the quick way of saying that is that I am multi-ethnic and multi-racial and, and that definitely frames how I, my positionality and how I move through the world. Um, and I just, yeah, I think that that's maybe something I would, I would go, I would add beyond my bio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many things you um, touched on that I actually was thinking about in follow-up questions. So it mm-hmm. works out um, pretty well. And I, I particularly was curious about um, what led you to really focusing in on that question around freedom. And I, I think when I hear you say that we're being free, not freedom, I should say, um, for our U.S. listeners, and we've talked about that <laughs> word and how triggering that can be in the U.S. context. Um, and, <laughs> Do you think, like, are you thinking free for you? Does it, it sounds a lot like the idea of liberation. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Like, how did you come to that point of, of focusing your work on that question? Yeah, I, and I, I'll go back to just me as a, as a child and adolescent and a university student and, and an adult. Like, I felt so much of my experience and so much of, and I, I also live um, with a, you know, I have diagnosed clinical anxiety. And so that's partially part of why my mind works the way it does. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I was always trying to figure out how to be something, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how to be something for someone or for some space. Like I needed to be, uh, you know, Filipino enough or Colombian enough or white American enough, or, you know, all of these things. I was always trying to be something. And, um, I felt that, my existence had become so disconnected from my humanity. Mm -hmm. Like I, my, my existence as a person was a performance of what I was expected to be within these systems of oppression. And I felt really disconnected from my humanity. And so my work has become, you know, as an educator, really wanting to be a part of cultivating systems and cultures where kids feel to me free to be free is to be fully human. Mm. Right. And I, I think a lot of the work of Paulo Freire and like his offerings and pedagogy of the oppressed and that like we are not free even when we benefit from systems of oppression because we're bound to that. like, right. you know, I think about my privileges and the ways that like I am, I'm reclaiming my humanity by trying to dismantle these systems that give me a sense of self in the oppression of others. Like that's mm-hmm. not freedom. That's not, mm-hmm. I'm not liberated in, in, in that way. And so like when I think about what does it mean to be free in many ways, it's a question of like, what does it mean to be fully human? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for me, what it means to be fully human is trying to be less and less of the, of the girl who was always performing, always mm-hmm. performing, always trying to fit into these boxes, always trying to be mm-hmm. what I thought people expected me to be. Um, and just yeah. getting to exist. Yeah. I, that's, I love everything that you're saying it's resonating so much of um so like as somebody who and I've talked about this on the podcast is like pretty racially ambiguous right where um I'm multiracial multi-ethnic as well um coming like having that reckoning of having walked through life thinking about white comfort Mm -hmm. and like wanting to make 
like wanting to appease white comfort and being hyper aware even as a child when I my existence was disrupting white comfort and wanting to fix it right I also have anxiety and so you're just kind of always hyper aware and it just makes me think like yeah freedom being free is not like is not having to have your identity measured against like the power, right? Like the systems of power. And I just, the liberation is not having to worry about the comfort of like the system of power of white supremacy. Like I just hearing you say that it's, it's resonating (laughs) quite a bit with me. Um, So, oh, go ahead, Hope. No, I, I was, I'm kind of nodding because I'm also thinking about kind of the last point you were making around it, it oppresses everybody. Like, yeah. even if you're benefiting in that system. And I think part of why like white supremacy is alive and well today um, is that white folks who are benefiting or people who are benefiting from it, um, whether they're white folks or, or in some cases, folks color, I don't know if we'll get into that later, but um, the fact is the fact of the matter, it's also damaging to them. And I think that part we do not talk about enough, um, or at least I'm not hearing folks talk about it enough, whether it's in schools or, you know, personal life or wherever it happens to be. And I think that's a huge missing piece in the conversation. Yeah. And I, I, my, because I live so much between, I straddle this line of oppressed and oppressor, um, you know, even moving to Latin America, I've moved to Colombia um, going on eight years now. And it's so interesting for me, just my own reconciliation of like, I went to predominantly white schools. I was in predominantly white universities. Um, I was very aware of my racial identity and very aware of my brownness, very aware of being other in a lot of those spaces. And then I moved to Columbia um, and, and even my first job in the States was like, I was the one, one the only like self-identifying um, person like who who was Latinx who was Filipino and then the other um folks of color in my community were were black core members and then everybody else was white and then I I moved to Columbia and like I'm my proximity to whiteness here is insane like Mm -hmm. I can move through uh, Columbia as a white person because of the way that race and the idea of of mestizaje or being mixed race here and like Mm -hmm. because every country has a different uh story and narrative with race and the ways that race is understood in the U.S. isn't the same in Colombia. And so just even me mm-hmm. grappling with like my, my racial identity in this new space and, and thinking about, you know, ultimately the dismantling of these systems is about my liberation, whether or not I benefit or I'm harmed by it, because either way I'm bound to a system that mm-hmm. tells me that my identity is contingent on the oppression of others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in ways I'm harmed by that, in ways I, I benefit from it, but either way, my identity isn't my own. My existence isn't my own. My humanity isn't my own. It's wrapped up in this like hierarchy that's created by white supremacy and anti-blackness. And so, yeah, a lot of that, you know, has been, a lot, you know, scholars that have really pushed my thinking on that. Paulo Freire and James Baldwin does a lot of work. James Baldwin mm-hmm. reading his his contributions have been a really important part of pushing my thinking into like what happens to those of us who also like what happens when you are all the oppressor because there's there's a conversation to be had there too yeah I think a question that I have actually for both of you because you both have moved away from the United States and have like lived there and then not lived here is how has your understanding about the relationship 
um, between white supremacy and the United States changed and shifted once you left and, and have come back, right? So existing in both spaces of white supremacy abroad and white supremacy here, like how has your understanding about the United States' relationship with white supremacy changed? Or has it? I mean, I'm sure it has. It like, yeah. it's, it's no, impossible, to, impossible to not have changed. Yeah. I think the... I think the overarching idea, I don't know if this is a change or so much like an idea that I've carried with me because I have lived, um, you know, I've lived in Spain, I've lived in Brazil, I now live in Colombia going on, like I said, eight years. And one of the, for me, living outside of the States and then living in different places, the, the overarching kind of thing that I've carried with me is to never underestimate white supremacy's ability hmm. to adapt. Like I say that a lot yeah. now. In my, yeah. in, my, in the work that I do as a consultant, yeah. like never, ever underestimate white supremacy's ability to adapt. And I think because we as, as, mm. as a culture and as a people and as a society consistently underestimate it is why yeah. it still exists, is why it still exists. Um, mm. And then moving to Colombia and just grappling with the concept of Latinidad and like what it means to be Latinx and like how that actual, like I don't actually... I used to, you know, be proud, proudly Latina and like, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I just, for me, my own, in my commitment to anti-racism, like I no longer necessarily, I mean, I'm so proudly Colombian and probably Filipino, but I've really criticized the ways that like Latinidad is really exclusive. It is a very exclusive concept for folks who look about as brown as me and lighter. And then if you're more indigenous and if you're, or if you're black Colombian or black Latino or Afro Latino, it's not a concept that was, that is in intended to include mm. you. And so I think mm -hmm. to your question, like how is my thinking around white supremacy evolved and changed outside of the U.S.? I really spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between white supremacy and anti-blackness and like what that means for me as a non-black woman of color. Um, I don't think I ever thought about the concept of anti-blackness till I left the U.S. Um, part of that is obviously my own privilege and not, I mean, that is the privilege of being a non-black person of color and, and being uh, light-skinned. Like I didn't necessarily have to, right? Um, and so looking now and looking, you know, if I ever am to move back to the States full time, I, I do think I have a much more critical eye around the ways that anti-blackness moves and the ways that it, it, it exists to uphold white supremacy and mm -hmm. like what my, my own cultures and how my cultures contribute to that and what that means for me as a Colombian and Filipino woman, like where do I question and where do I, where can I um, critique and interrogate and dismantle in my own cultures and family um, mm -hmm. and give that a big shift for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only thing I might add um from my own experience is probably, I think there's a little bit of like light shining in a different way. Um, it's stuff that maybe you saw before, but I think the way that the light shines on it just looks a little bit different. Um, and I suppose I could like make a, a window glass metaphor. Like you see the light coming through, but like now it's clear in a different way. Um, I think moving abroad has just re-highlight, I like has highlighted some things in the States that I think maybe I rationalized away or I heard other folks rationalize away. Um, and so sometimes I think I, I likened this when we first moved abroad, like likened it a little bit to like an, 
an abusive relationship, like you kind of just like, you're just like settling for certain things. Cause you're like, well, it's the best I got right now. Yeah. Um, and maybe partly I'm thinking about this because I just finished the season of made, um, which really drives home. I don't know if you guys have watched that, but it really drives home just, just the way that, um, abuse works and like the way, um, that kind of manipulative, those kind of manipulative relationships work. And I really think about it that way, right? Like we've just been conditioned in the U S to kind of accept things as the way they are, um, or that it's too hard to change or that it's happening to somebody else and not as much to you and it's like not as close or whatever whatever the excuse has been given I think depending on the positionality of the person right and as you're thinking about it um and certainly getting away from that a little bit there's other problems as um Elisa you mentioned like abroad and just kind of what that shines a light on that's totally di- that's different but I, I think there's a little bit of that as well mm-hmm. I hearing you both talk about it I, I find it like really interesting as somebody who hasn't lived abroad to recognize that. And I also think that it comes with American exceptionalism and this narrative that is like given to like mm-hmm. people living in the United States of like, yeah. that we are exceptional and that our experience is unique and special and different, but not in like, not unique and special and different in the negative ways. And so I just, the parallels of this conversation as well as like our conversations around the book cast, um, and, and thinking about that when you were talking about how these systems harm those in power as well, the oppressors, I thought of caste as well. So it's just, it's really interesting I hearing you both talk about that, right, of how it is different. It, does, it has shifted. Well, and your point about exceptionalism, I think that's that's partly why, right? If we just keep this narrative up in the U.S. of like we're exceptional, we're up, we don't do that kind of stuff, and then we like try mm-hmm. to point fingers at some other place that does, has some actual version that's quite parallel to what we're doing. Um, but because of that hierarchy, you know, and, and attach it to whiteness, attach it to mm-hmm. like religious superiority or whatever, like narratives are are brought up in the U.S. that justify that that exceptionalism. And I think that goes both ways too. Like speaking from somebody who. Um, not only grew up, you know, as a Colombian woman and immersed in Colombian culture, but has had the opportunity and the privilege to study uh, racialization and, and, and race in Latin America and has lived here for eight years. Like, I think that to my point, like I have learned to never underestimate white supremacy's ability to adapt because the adaptations of it across the globe are what keep us like pointing fingers at each other. Because similarly, like Absolutely. having and leading conversations around race in Colombia with, you know, the advent of social media and, and just the ways that, that activist culture has shifted in the last 10 years. And because there's platforms in the U S and because there is a vocal, like black lives matter movement, or there is, you know, these conversations happening so often spaces that I'm in, in Colombia, people use as a way to say like, Oh, it's worse in the U S we don't have here. We don't have a issue here, but so it's, it's, this, it's this, like, again, white supremacy just adapting to different Absolutely. cultures and to different uh, communities so that folks can stay in this, like, it's worse yeah. over there sort yeah. of narrative yeah. space as opposed to actually just taking a real hard look at what it looks like because yeah. it, it's, it's racism is alive and well, anti-blackness is alive and well, white supremacy is alive and well in Colombia. I know that. Um, in the ways that I, I benefit from it, in the ways I've been harmed from it, but so often it's this like comparative analysis that keeps folks from actually like doing the the hard mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. I, and I, it's so interesting because I think that every 
every culture places value on its proximity to whiteness, right? The value of the proximity to whiteness, which oftentimes is what is the catalyst for the pointing the fingers, right? Yeah. Like it's it's the catalyst for the the power and privilege dynamic. But the way that that manifests, I'm sure, is different in every community and every culture. And I, I also want to say we've said anti-Blackness um, a couple of times. You said anti-Blackness a couple of times. I just want to pause. And if any of our listeners haven't shifted the conversations or had the conversations about the differentiation or distinction between racism and anti-Blackness, can you kind of explain that in your mind? What is the difference between racism, which we've heard, you know, that's the buzzword, and then specifically anti-Blackness? Yeah. Um, so in my work and in my perception, like I talk about it as systems versus symptoms and like racism is a, racism is a symptom. It is, you know, the, the manifestation of systems. Um, and I have come to understand in my own unpacking of my own personal, my own, in my own unpacking personally, as well as just like in my studies, White supremacy is a system and anti-blackness is a system and they are sister systems. They, they operate um, together um, and anti-blackness is, is a system that is really specific to the type of violence discrimination that black folks experience around the world, right? It is different than, I won't ever experience that as a non-black woman of color. Um, I'll experience racism as the symptom of white supremacy, but anti-blackness, you know, it's unique because of the transatlantic slave trade. It's unique because of, and this is a real messy truth that a lot of folks don't want to sit with, but like in order for white supremacy to exist, in order for, there has to be something at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of us, myself included, as a woman of color has gone through a, in, like a systemic, deeply institutionalized mm -hmm. programming to see black people at the bottom of that hierarchy to see black people as less than human. That is a ugly, messy truth that a lot of folks don't wanna wrestle with. But the reality is like, when we talk about anti-blackness, it, it, it means wrestling with and reckoning with that white supremacy as a system created this other system in order to maintain whiteness at the top, we had to believe something was at the bottom. And at the bottom was that, that justified the transatlantic slave trade in, in, in the white mind. That justifies a lot of the, the cultural things that I listened to growing up about straightening my hair and staying out of the sun and not getting too dark. It justifies, you know, even as Filipino people or dark skinned Asians, you know, the last time I was in the Philippines, I had to go to three different stores to find mm -hmm. regular sunscreen that wasn't skin whitening sunscreen. Because at the bottom of the hierarchy, is black folks. And so you want to distance yourself from yeah. that yeah. in this, in this social system. And so it's, it's acknowledging that there is a very unique way um, that black folks experience violence, that black folks experience racism that is different than non-black folks of color, because that's, that's, that's white supremacy at work too. That's the, yeah. their sister system. That's the algorithm that like, if something's at the top, something else has to be at the bottom. And, and, um, Isabel Workerson talks about this in cast. Those of us in the middle then are forced yeah. without criticality, we're, yeah. we're asked to make a choice. We're programmed to make a choice. Mm -hmm. You align yourself to whiteness 
or you commit to dismantling the whole systems Mm -hmm. without criticality. Mm -hmm. So many of us in the middle, I'm using air quotes here, um, (laughs) realizing this is a podcast, but I'm using air quotes. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate (laughs) it. So many of us like in that middle cast, as she talks about it in her book, for non-Black people of color, this is how we uphold white supremacy. We align ourselves to whiteness by enacting anti-Black racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation is <laughs> I am like every single thing I'm like oh my gosh yet yeah. I'm like taking furious notes right now which generally <laughs> um, I'm not taking this many notes in most of our conversations I'm excited to continue it I think this is a good good spot for a break for us um, so we'll take a break quick break and then come back and continue this awesome conversation friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MovedToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling, and you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. All right. So welcome back from that break. Before we continue our conversation, I just really want to encourage you to become a member of Channel 253. The um, unique nature, no other place is going to have such specific Tacoma current events and news. Um, And if you value the work that happens on this network, I really encourage you to become a member. Link is in the bio. It's only $4 a month. Super simple, super easy. And actually, Hope, how much is it for a year? Save some dollars. Isn't that $40 a year? My, 40, my math here. Yeah, save a couple dollars. Just subscribe for the entire year. Um, so we are back here with our conversation with Elisa, the one that I'm just like entranced by and just like loving. So Elisa, I would love if you, you use the word criticality a couple times um, today. And I remember that word slapping me in the face at the workshop you led a couple weeks ago um, <laughs> that I was in with you. And we'll talk more later, folks. Y'all need to get on those workshops um, and we'll link to some of that information. So how you can do that. But it was interesting because I haven't heard that word used the way you were using it. Mm-hmm. And of course, that got me thinking. And then a whole bunch of us at my school were like, ooh, let's start using that in our classes, which we've been a little bit hypocritical and haven't really yet. But I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about why, um, what is criticality, critic, you can say it, what is it, what is it? this, maybe this is why I haven't said it, it's because I still need to practice saying it. Um, and, and I'm like hesitant because it's, it, okay. it changes for me sometimes what that word might mean, but I think, yeah. um, I started using it as a classroom teacher, actually. I started using it when, um, 
I, so I had an opportunity a few years ago to design a course and create a curriculum called innovation for social change. And mm-hmm. I taught that for a while. And, um, I started using it as a way to invite my students into like questioning when does help become harmful? Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the nature of the course was looking at, it was setting them up for what was going to be their 12th grade graduation project. And, yeah. um, so much of the work that international schools, especially in independent schools, especially around service learning, around community oh, yeah. engagement is savior complexity. Yeah. This idea that we have, so we'll save you from yourself as opposed to actually like looking at the systems. And so I started to use this idea of criticality and the word criticality and in, um, and, you know, it comes from a lot of theorists yeah. that, you know, Paulo Freire and critical pedagogy and like, even like critical race theory, like this concept of criticality comes from a lot of theorists way before me, but I just started using it as a way to invite my students to just think about what, as a way to interrogate power, mm. as a way to think about, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, Bless um, you. Bless you. as a way to just interrogate, like who has helped, who has harmed here, yeah. um, as a way to ask, how am I upholding that system of harm? Where do I fall into this? Um, I think, in my own life, that's where criticality comes in is just asking like, where am I in this hierarchy? Mm-hmm. Where am I in, in this hierarchy that this system wants us to buy into? And how, what does it look like for me to, to question, am I upholding it or am I challenging it? And mm-hmm. so when I think about criticality, it, it's just simply not, it, it's a move away from neutrality. Like nothing is neutral. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. Nothing is neutral. And especially education is not neutral. Yeah. That, you know, that again, harkens back to a lot of great activists and scholars. Um, and so it's, to me, it's like nothing that I do is really neutral. So I'm going to be critical about yeah. what I'm contributing to. Am mm-hmm. I contributing to harm or am I contributing to, to that, 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 question my essential question as a person as an educator like what does it mean to be free Mm -hmm. am I contributing to our shared liberation am I contributing to our shared collective humanity and so for me that's kind of what I think about when I when I think about being from a place of criticality yeah Yeah. and I appreciate laying that out go ahead go ahead so that actually leads me to the question that like I have been thinking a lot about in a lot of the conversations that we have been having on the podcast is like in your consulting work, right? That theoretically you are being invited into spaces, white spaces that are saying they're ready to do the work, right? That they're, they're ready to do the work to dismantle anti-blackness in their schools and organizations. Um, And I just, I'm curious, like what is something that you've seen happening in these white spaces that are like, thinking that they're doing the work but you wish they would stop Woo, that's a good question um so many thoughts i I, so i want to start by saying like i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna go out on a limb here and i don't know if it's that much of a limb i don't know that that many international schools or organizations that i've worked with are thinking about anti-blackness i think they're Mm -hmm. thinking about i think white supremacy has become slightly more normalized yeah yeah Um, even the ways that I can move as a consultant is an example of anti-blackness. Um, the ways that people will listen to me talk about anti-blackness and not a black person 
is anti-blackness. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and the ways, you know, I, I've had to think about that in my positionality as a consultant and like really question and be critical about like whether or not I'm upholding anti-blackness by not having that conversation and not holding, you know, and, and I've had to not take clients because I felt really uncomfortable with the fact that it was me that they were hiring because of my skin tone, because I was a safe brown person. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to actually say, I don't think a lot of schools are talking about anti-blackness. I don't think, um, I think we're just getting maybe comfortable with white supremacy, but to really sit with the, the, the understandings and, and the comp- to wrestle with the system of anti-blackness, we have to wrestle with the part of our, our minds that has been conditioned to see black people as less than human. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think that folks are really there yet. Um, mm-hmm. As far as like your second question, what do I, what do I, I'm going to, I'm going to frame it this way. Something I need to stop for me to even continue in this work. Cause I've been struggling. I'm going to be really honest with y'all. I have been struggling mm-hmm. um, is I need people to stop seeing DEI consultants or DEIJ consultants or just people of color who are doing this work as like a forever extractable resource. Mm-hmm. Like I am a human being. I am. Mm-hmm. I, and, and it's mm-hmm. a really complicated thing to be in because I struggle with this. You know, I am, I am, you are hiring me, right? You are hiring me, but I'm also, but I'm not a commodity. Yeah. Right. And setting those boundaries of like, you are hiring me to provide a service, but I am not a commodity. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that goes really deep into even just the ways that people of color are seen as, as commodities, the ways Mm -hmm. that black folks are seen as capital, because Mm -hmm. that is that hard. That's the transatlantic slave trade. That is Mm -hmm. the whole system of Mm -hmm. slavery. Um, A colleague of mine, a mentor of mine, a close friend of mine, Darnell Fine talks about that. Like, to exist as a black man doing DEI work is to have to constantly challenge the ways that people see you as capital. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so I think what that looks like concretely is going to a workshop, preparing a series of workshops. And, and I think there's a fine line between people asking for asking questions, asking clarifying questions or asking just, you know, do you have a couple more resources on this? Versus like the demanding of this needs to be perfectly catered to my school and community. Yeah. yeah. Like you're constantly wanting to extract from me more and more. And it also speaks to the ease at which you want this work to happen. You yeah. want hand you a pamphlet that makes this yep. easy. Justice yeah. work, liberation work is not easy. Um, Bettina Love talks about this in her book, We Want to Do More Than Just Survive. She has a quote where she says something along the lines of, um, you know, I'm not asking for struggle, but I know that my liberation won't come without it. And I think schools have to really, from my lens as a consultant, like stop looking for a consultant to do the work for you. I, you still have to want to do this. You still have to want to get your, get into it. And, and it's a, it's a, it's an exhausting feeling sometimes. Like I've come out of spaces feeling a bit like, you know, and as a, and this is, this is me still unlearning white supremacy, still unlearning Western mm-hmm. notions of perfection, mm-hmm. still unlearning, you know, I call myself a recovering perfectionist, still unlearning like Western <laughs> notions of success. It drains me because I, you know, yeah. my, 
who starts telling me I wasn't good enough. I didn't do my job well enough. I'm bad at this. And it's my criticality that reminds me that like, no, like I'm also not a commodity to constantly distract yeah. And so I think that that's the first thing that comes to mind is just the ways that schools choose to engage in this. It has to come from a place of knowing that, that there's going to need to be some real heavy lifting on their end too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think of, as you're saying this, um, I think it's even not even, but also in the, the nonprofit youth development world, the, the, I used to work in that space and just the struggle that I had where you, where the, um, black and brown kids that were served, the youth that we served when it came time for the annual auctions, when it came time for calling for more money from white people, white wealthy people, um, the all of a sudden all the work that we would do for the in the 12 months leading up to those the annual auction around dismantling white supremacy dismantling systems of oppression dismantling racism all of the stuff that we would work on as a staff would go out the window and we would all of a sudden be expected to use our the black and brown um, kids as commodity and parade them in front of the um, wealthy white people at these auctions to talk mm-hmm. about their trauma and talk about their story. And all of a sudden they were a commodity and it was just, it, it always felt yucky. And so it just like also thinking about the being or the criticality that is required to look at like personal statements and like as educators, how are you having conversations with your students around their personal statements? And it it just, all of these things add up to what you're saying, right? Like all of these things add up to the systems that oppress, like these anti-black systems, the white supremacist systems that it's all about white comfort it's all about white comfort and, and how do you, and I think sometimes what's interesting and as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking like, you know, like, Oh, playing the game, you have to play the game. Like, do you, like you're aware of it, but you still play into it. So you feel like you have some sort of control over it. Um, and I don't like, I don't know what the answer is or what the question even is, but like, I'm thinking about that right now too. It's like, what I don't know like <laughs> I think too, so sorry no go ahead please I think for me something a newer not newer um but an interesting it's not new at all but an interesting phenomenon that I'm seeing happen in international schools who are taking on this justice work this diversity and inclusion work is like it's not even just white comfort it's white interests like yeah. they're entering this mm-hmm. space about like you know and that when I say it's not new that's is because it's not you know Derek Bell yeah. yeah. Uh, his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, who yeah. was one yeah. of the, you know, the, the founders of critical race theory, talks about this concept of interest convergence and that the liberation of Black folks only ever comes when it is aligned with some sort of white interest. And even then, it's questionable if it was even about the liberation of people of color, if it was just white interest. And so when I think about these schools, like I've had this, I've said this in sessions that I've led, I've said this in board meetings, like, the goal here cannot be about making your white community look more progressive. The mm-hmm. goal is about like it, the, the thing that I need schools mm-hmm. to, to stop doing is measuring their success on how quote unquote woke yeah. the white folks in their community are. 
Because if the white folks in your community are more apt at using terms like white supremacy and anti-blackness and they can navigate a conversation around microaggressions, but the BIPOC people, you know, the black indigenous people of color in your community are still experiencing microaggressions. Hey. They'll have white supremacy yeah. on their neck. Then you're not doing anything. You're not yeah. doing anything yes. other than performing this idea of liberation. And so I think... Mm-hmm. You know, it goes beyond, you know, I want to get rid of white comfort and I want to, I want to get rid of white interests in liberation. Like liberation work for people of color, for BIPOC folks, isn't about white folks feeling more progressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's really interesting. Like the white interest. I, I think, you know how you were saying like white supremacy and anti-blackness are sister systems. Like I, I think that white interest and white comfort have to go hand in hand. Yeah. Right. Like white people are not going to deal with things that they are not yet comfortable enough. And they get to say like, Ooh, no, I'm uncomfortable. And there's discomfort in this. And, and I say they like, right. I, I occupy that space. I shouldn't be like placing it. Right. But like, um, I think that they have to reach a threshold of discomfort then they're like, oh, now I'm interested in it, right? Like I can wrap my head around this. I can, I can still, my positionality to power is still safe enough in many Mm -hmm. ways. And I think that a lot of like woke, progressive, liberal, white people have to have a reckoning around that. They Mm -hmm. have to have a reckoning around every time that they feel upset or angry about how somebody is demanding their liberation to like rather than push back against it stop themselves and stay oh my whiteness is getting in the way like my my need like it's directing my interest because I think it's one and the same it's it I, there's no way that it's not in my mind and so it's like I think that that's why and how people of color have been conditioned in this white supremacist system to constantly be navigating white comfort because I think people of color for centuries and centuries have been taught that the only way that there will be any gain towards power, any move towards liberation is if white people allow it to happen, if they're like comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just... It's, it makes me very frustrated. It's like very <laughs> frustrating, obviously. Um, as, we're, as we're thinking about all this and kind of getting close to wrapping up, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, and I recognize that this question also is like very, um, feels a little bit like a little bit what we're talking about. Like I'm thinking about listeners who've asked like, then what, what should folks do? Or like, what's a starting point? So recognizing that that's also a crap question, especially like trying to slap something easy on something that's extremely complicated um, and rooted in our systems. Um, is there, as you're, I think you've talked a little bit around places that people could start. And I'm curious, is there anything else that you haven't said that you think is also a starting point, particularly for schools or those working in education spaces? Um, yeah, I think, so that's a, it's a big question, which you've already uh, named and acknowledged, but I think I'll, I'll try to answer just like from education. Um, I, I think that we are so, so deeply programmed. Um, hold on, let me pause. Let me say this correctly. I think, I, I think that 
a lot of schools need to do some really serious like culture building and mm-hmm. um, just like mindset shifting around abundance and mm-hmm. that like freedom and liberation and isn't, isn't finite. You know, I, I, I talked about this in, in an intersectionality workshop that I led of like free, like liberation is a pie. Um, and, and so I think we're so conditioned, like not you getting a slice of pie does not mean that there's less slice, there's less pie for me. Like liberation, liberation is, is infinite. Um, and, but we are so conditioned in these systems and I, and myself included to like have this scarcity mindset, you know, and that is, that is the intersect of capitalism overlaid over all of this, like the scarcity mindset, like there's simply just, if we don't follow the rules. And if we don't stay, if we loosen, if we challenge the system, we're going to lose it all. And I think that a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of really beautiful and powerful work can begin with some, uh, some culture building on abundance. Like mm-hmm. what, yeah. what, what does it look like to be in, in our abundance, uh, in, in our humanity in our complete humanity. And that, that, that looks, you know, and I also feel like we, we lose a lot of, uh, lose isn't the right word there. Sorry. We, we spend a lot of time, necessary time. We spend a lot of necessary time on like dismantling these systems and abolishing mm-hmm. these systems. But sometimes we forget about the like rebuilding, right? The purpose yeah. to abolishing is to yep. rebuild. The mm-hmm. purpose of dismantling is to reconstruct. And so, so I think that yeah. I want to invite educators and schools to think outside of the systems that we've been so conditioned in as the only way to operate and just start radically imagining and radically dreaming like, what might it look like? What might abundance look like? What might humanity look like if everyone in our community, regardless of their gender, sexuality, gender yeah. expression, gender identity, race, could just exist, right? Um, and like, that's a, it's a, it's a, I'm going to acknowledge right now, like that seems, that's a hippie dippy answer. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, oh, like, cause I know that someone listening to the podcast right now is like, well, we need concretely to know what that actually looks like. But yeah. I I do think our mental models first do need to begin to shift of like, there's, there is, there is a way to radically dream into abundance. Yeah. And there's a way to yeah. radically imagine our collective freedom and our collective liberation and, mm-hmm. and letting go of that idea of freedom is finite. And so, yeah. right. Like it's, um, freedom is, is it's like a flame, right? Like it's like a fire, when you light somebody else's fire, like your blaze doesn't burn any less bright. And if you feel like it does, that's not liberation, that's power. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. there's a difference between that, like yeah. of what, or what your perceived power is in proximity and like within a, like the system, right? Yeah. Like if I light your fire from my fire, that does not impact the success of mine, but it does impact the success of yours. And so I just... It, it's and then if you yeah like if you feel like it does then you need to have a conversation with yourself you need to have yeah. some critical thinking with yourself around what mm-hmm. what do you believe is the goal mm-hmm. yeah and I think wrestle with some of the messy truths about like I think school leaders especially want to look at this from this sort of like abstract like distant yeah. even if they've gotten comfortable naming the system even if they've gotten comfortable with like okay white supremacy and like I might have some white privilege or like I recognize Mm-hmm. sort of as like an abstract exercise. And I, I really want to invite folks to get into like, okay, so where specifically in my mind do I have internalized superiority? 
In what ways do I walk around this earth and think I'm better than folks Mm -hmm. because of the color of my skin, Mm -hmm. because of my gender or because of my sexuality? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not just saying like, oh, I get I have white privilege. Oh, I get I have like, I think folks are, are getting increasingly more comfortable with that concept, but it's becoming also increasingly more performative when we're saying like, I have, I get, yes, I get that I have white privilege and there's a system that upholds whiteness. Okay. So now internalize that by asking yourself, where do you walk around? And I've had to do that. Like, where do I walk around in the world and and in my mind and think that I am actually better than people? Mm. That's a messy, ugly truth that I have to confront and face, but it is the only way to get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is the only way to get free is to to have that conversation with myself, and I want to invite schools and school leaders and educators to create space to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And how? And I think of with schools, I think of that school is inherently a white supremacist system that is going into these communities of color and then creating the systems in which they're going to liberate the school and community, right? And it's like it's white people and white supremacy that is creating the rules for how you're going to do this and how you're going to engage, like how the parents and families are going to engage with the schools. And if they're not going willing to engage with the schools in the way that the school system has decided is appropriate, then they don't get to be a part of it. And I think like school systems in the United States, and it sounds like the more I like have these conversations here, it sounds like, and international schools, like schools abroad, like that's a, that's a big piece of it is, is like, well, oh, those families or those students aren't, don't get to be a part of the conversation because they didn't earn their right to be a part of the conversation based off of their choices and behaviors. But who made the decision of what is appropriate? Who, who was making the rules of how to engage and what that means and, and looks like? And the fact that only last year, I think of parent-teacher conferences, the COVID was the reason that those were moved to virtual. Before it was like you parents had to come to the school and they had to schedule this and this and they had to do this and they had to do that. And like, even that alone, like such a basic engagement with these institutions, there was so much gatekeeping, mm-hmm. like so much gatekeeping. And there still is. And it's like, I think that the conversations that happen within the school building with teachers and admin, the conversations and then act- the actuality of the situation, there's so much that work that has to be done. Because yeah. they oftentimes don't match. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I feel like we could talk forever, but we need to wrap up. <laughs> um, and we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you got a million other things to do. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. If folks are interested in getting hold of you or hiring you for consulting work or um, following you on, on social media, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, follow me on social media is just for like my last name and first name. So at Ferreras Alisa. And I also have a webpage, elisaferris.org. You can learn a little bit more about my work and there's contact info there as well. Um, and I also just want to shout out a couple of folks really quickly that yes, perfect. really widened my learning. Um, I, I really specifically thought a lot about anti-Blackness in the Latinx community and, and within Latinidad, just as somebody who is both Colombian and lives in Colombia. Um, Alan Pelaez Lopez, he's an incredible Afro-Indigenous poet, artist, uh, writer, and I've read a lot from him. Um, as well as, um, yes, like I, the really quickly, 
the scholarship of like the very first people who brought us like the, the ideas of, of intersectionality. Like I want mm-hmm. Audrey Lord has shaped so much. Yeah. Of me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even learning about it, like the, through the, the eyes of the law, like through Kimberly, Kemsh- through Kimberly Kemshaw, but also just um, Audrey Lord and James Baldwin. And, and then like social media, there's a lot of great digital creators who are talking about this. You know, yeah. I follow a lot of folks. Um, one of the pages that I follow is called the Afro Latin diaspora. And it talks a lot about unpacking anti-blackness within and decolonizing this idea of Latinidad. Um, I can give like 700 more. I'll stop myself. Yeah. Again, I just wanted to definitely give credit where credit is due and the folks who've impacted my thinking. Yeah. Well, and if you want to send us any of those in email, I'm happy to add them to our show notes and we can tweet them out as well and tag folks um, on social media. Um, Our final segment, Megan, which I think we kind of talked through, but go ahead and save a little tag. So do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. Okay. So the homework is simply um, for me is go follow some of the sources that were mentioned earlier. And also I really think that y'all should find a way to attend um, one of Elisa's workshops. Mm -hmm. Um, They're posted online and you can get involved in those and learn something, learn something more. Um, Mine is very similar to that. Um, Also, I found a a great um, New York Times opinion piece that's it's I'm linked it in the show notes. Call it what it is. Anti-blackness. It's a really great article about the difference between um, racism and anti-blackness. And it's about how racism didn't kill George Floyd. Anti-blackness did. It's a really good. Uh, Anything else our listeners should do, think or check out? Uh. And just keep willing to be questioning yourself and be critical and just know, I mean, I know that this has probably become cliche, but like know that this work never ends uh, until, you know, I, I just started reading a book called We Do This Till We're Free. Um, mm. And and like, yeah, we do this till we're free. Like we do, uh, it's, an, it's a Miriam um, Kaba and like, until there isn't white supremacy, until there isn't anti-blackness, until there, you know, until there aren't these systems like cis heteronormativity and patriarchy that try to rob us of our humanity. Like we do this till we're free. And so stay in the work, um, figure out what that looks like, figure out what it looks like to have communities that hold you accountable, figure out how, you know, for, for BIPOC listeners, remember that rest and joy are, are forms of resistance and systems that try to rob us of our humanity, you know, experiencing joy and finding ways to rest are also forms of resistance. So that's it. Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. I don't know why I thought on a Sunday it wouldn't be like street noise. Always street noise. So I apologize that I'm on the balcony and not in my office. I realized in like the third honk, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You. This is Channel 253.